0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey everyone, welcome to the Heart Over Hype podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Shamar Charles. This podcast focuses on the goal of providing unique and culturally sensitive perspectives on physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health and wellness. Our goal is to provide you with the best millennial and Gen Z health news you can use. If you like this podcast, follow us on Instagram at @whos the podcast and give us a rating of 5 stars on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Now without further delay, let's get
1: started.
0: So let me set the stage for our conversation today. My dad never met his dad. He lost his dad 4 months before he was born. By 8, he would lose his mother, and by 13, he'd also lose his grandmother. He dreamed of making them proud, and that's exactly what he did. He was raised by his great aunt, who made education his absolute bedrock. And that was integral to his success, because raising a young boy in rural Haiti, when you have very, very, very little, isn't easy. But he worked hard in school, and eventually he became a published author and a school principal, and really he was well on his way to making it. The term self-made doesn't do his efforts justice. He's the hardest working person I know. And you're all probably wondering why I'm sharing this story with you. Well, it's to paint the picture that the Charles way is the hard way. My dad hasn't had a large family to share his success with, but we know that our last name, the Charles last name, comes with a steely reserve and a passion to make a big difference in this world. The, the last name Charles for me holds deep meaning. Uh, it's more than just a last name, it's a legacy. And this legacy is one that screams nothing ever comes easy to a Charles. And that's the legacy of My Cousin by Heritage and Shared Culture, today's featured guest, Dr. Melissa Charles. Melissa originally hails from Ottawa, Canada. She came to the States on an academic scholarship to Oakwood University, an HBCU. Shout out to all my HBCUs. And eventually graduated from Loma Linda School of Medicine's dual doctoral program. Her Ph.D. is in microbiology and molecular genetics. Her residency specialty is anesthesiology. But her story is one of absolute perseverance. It is your typical Charles story. I met Melissa because we have a mutual friend, Anne Louise, and I noticed that Melissa and I had the same last name and we both had um, a Haitian background. I am always looking to piecemeal my father's ancestry so the both of us can know where we come from. So I reached out to Melissa just on a whim to see maybe if we're related. Uh, We met up one day um, when I was in California on a work trip, and we instantly connected. When I heard her story, I knew we were family, even though we had no way of proving it. So without further ado, welcome the beautiful, the amazing Dr. Melissa Charles, the real Doctor Charles of the family, uh, Melissa. To kick us off, can you tell us about your journey to medicine, starting when, uh, starting from rather, <laughs> when you were a little girl to now.
1: Labyrinth, and um, if I were to ask myself as a seven or even ten year old or even thirteen year old, I never envisioned medicine as being a career path. And the way that medicine has opened up to me now as an adult is is quite phenomenal. So as a kid. Um, my first love was art, and my first recollection of picking up a pencil or a paintbrush was with my father, and I was just completely enamored by it. I knew that that's something I wanted to pursue, not exactly sure in what capacity it would eventually unfold, but I knew very well at that time that that is the direction that I wanted to be in. So I went to an art high school. I'm skipping a lot, (laughs) but I went for the interest of time. I went to an art high school and part of our requirement to um, get into medicine, excuse me, not get into medicine, but to graduate was to complete 48 hours of volunteer work. And just out of convenience, I used to stay in the studio late at night, um, there was a hospital close by. So it was this Health center that allowed volunteers to come in and put in hours. And that was my first introduction to medicine as a viable career option. So I pivoted from there, um, and this wasn't an aha moment. It definitely occurred through multiple hours of seeing patient care, patient interaction, and also kind of witnessing, as a, you know, I suppose a fly on the wall, the different facets of healthcare. And I I really fell in love with the way physicians were not only directly involved in care, but it also tapped into your analytical space, et cetera. So my trajectory into medicine was not traditional in the sense that I didn't do straight undergrad, straight medical school. <laughs> um, and from the Perspective of where I was standing from the option of going to college here in in the United States was so exorbitant and I'm the third of four kids is raised by um, A single mom. And so it it definitely didn't seem like something that was feasible financially, despite the scholarships that was offered. Um, So through a very weird way. um, I think I came to the US with a few hundred dollars and just a determination that this was going to come to pass. And I was very fortunate to have visionaries and people who chimed in and helped out that helped make the way um, a bit more smooth than it would have been had they not been present. And um, before I knew it, I was applying to a double doctorate degree program, um, which I got accepted in. It was a full ride scholarship. And here I am now. <laughs> now, the interesting part is, um, while I matriculated, I, um, when I graduated, I did anesthesiology residency and eventually transitioned out. And I think uh, speaking with you, uh, I'm going to call you Dr. Charles, <laughs> speaking with you and a few other colleagues who had wrenched out into different um, avenues, but still implementing medicine made that transition much more Um, easier for me and i'm so happy i made that transition so now i work as a clinical research scientist doing consultant work for oncology research and clinical trials
0: it truly warms my heart to know that i played some small role in your journey so thank you for sharing that you've taken a bit of a circuitous path in medicine and now you're pursuing a non-traditional route can you tell us a little bit about this alternate career path and what you like about the work you do
1: yeah absolutely Um, What I love about the work that I do is that I interface and interact with so many physicians that are on the cusp of challenging the therapeutic landscape and paradigm for some of the deadliest forms of cancers. And so they potentially could help um, dictate what the standard of care and guideline will be in the next uh, 10, 15, or even 20 years. And so what I love about the work that I do is I am engaging in clinical research, um, not in a very indirect fashion, but it allows me to also stay abreast on new developments and keep my hand on the pulse of what is relevant with a multitude of physicians. And so I have an understanding of standard of care and different guidelines, institutional policies, and how things are delivered, which I definitely wouldn't have been privy to. The other thing that I absolutely enjoy about this line of work, which is a little different, much different from being in the OR, um, is the work-life balance. (laughs) And so, granted, the work is still intense. Um, You're still doing a lot of work, but I think it provides me with the opportunity to still invest in other interests and to have certain days off. And that is a flexibility that um, is a little bit more strained if you stay, say, in academia, per se. So I love that it bridges the um, the background that I have in, like, investigative research, and then it still allows me to stay abreast on patient care and also help move the needle forward in ensuring that we have better outcomes for cancers that typically have poor prognoses. And so It's like the best of both worlds. I get to talk for a living on a topic that I'm well-versed in. So it's so much fun.
0: Uh Oh, you mentioned work-life balance. That is a trigger for me. We both know that work-life balance is elusive at best for doctors. (laughs) And uh, it poses a huge obstacle in our pursuit of happiness. Aside from work-life balance, what were some obstacles that you faced in your journey to MD-PhD?
1: Oh, my goodness. Well, um, I, I think that the question is twofold right one is addressing work life balance and how physicians can perhaps factor that into segue into a different career path and then the other one is obstacles so i'll touch the work life balance briefly and i'll go into obstacles afterwards if that's okay. Um, as far as uh, work life balance, I think that the field in and of itself inherently skews you into not having work-life balance. <laughs> in essence, in undergrad, you're preparing your application to get into medical school and the matriculating through medical school is not balanced in any capacity. And by balance, it's like having your golden weekend after exam week <laughs> um, and, and then residency, which is strenuous and granted it's a noble pathway. And I applaud a lot of my colleagues who've maintained that pathway. However, there are some real um, you know, matters that Uh, still have room to grow um, as far as ensuring that physicians have time to recuperate from what can be emotionally and physically taxing Um, and so that was not the entire reason why i branched out but i i love that i i can recover from a hard week (laughs) i love that when i you know when i'm done with work i'm done with work and i don't have to carry that home and so everyone has to make an individual decision for themselves. It may not be one that you know your peers or even your family may support. But at the end of the day, it's your life. And so, and there's so many opportunities outside of clinical practice. Now, regarding obstacles that I faced in medical school, there are many, and I think you know, especially in 2020, with um, the magnifying glass uh, on issues of you know inclusion and diversity. I think that when I was matriculating, some of those issues may have um, influenced uh, certain opportunities or certain certain ways that certain, um, I'm trying to be very careful with my words here. <laughs> I want to be vulnerable, uh, but I, I also want to be um, I want to be sensitive and delicate to the matter. Um, so I, I think one of the main the biggest obstacles was ensuring that inclusivity. Um, didn't limit my opportunity to grow as a scholar. And that was something that was evident as I matriculated, especially in the field of science. And the second one, which was most notable was uh, funds. And so while I had tuition covered entirely, um, there are times where funding changed and I didn't have living expenses. And so um, there's a portion of my medical school curricula for about like two years where I lived out of my car and so, you know, you're doing, you're doing surgery rotation in, at a hospital that's known to, you know, work their medical students, and then you leave and you study in your car, or you hope to catch Starbucks or the library, at school. Um, and so, having to navigate that, and then to do it in a way where I wasn't drawing attention to myself either by my performance academically or by looking in a way that would suggest that my entire livelihood was in my trunk. Um, was definitely one of the most challenging obstacles, Um, and it definitely is, it it kind of like overshadows the other inherent obstacles of academia and going through an MD-PhD program, such as finding a dissertation committee, defending, um, troubleshooting your experiment, you know, transitioning back and forth between the medical curricula and graduate school. So I think those are the two things that um, I think are most notable.
0: Wow. Thank you for your candor. I couldn't imagine being essentially homeless during medical school, especially in the last two years, which are the toughest because you're thinking about medical boards and your residency applications are due. I just couldn't imagine it. And I know that we've talked all about the quandary uh, between meeting your basic needs while constantly having to deal with shit like the local police and waking up to gunshots, intrusive homeless people, peeping Toms, etc., Um, These are all of the things that our homeless populations have to deal with living in an urban environment. Um, You have the unique experience of being able to relate with so many people who have been forgotten. And that number is growing in the midst of the pandemic. So it begs to question, how did you do it? Uh, What drove you to persevere despite Um, seemingly insurmountable odds?
1: You know, there are. There are quite a multitude of things. Um, I had my best friend and she lives in Toronto who checked in on me every day. And so knowing that there was someone who was daily checking in on me, my mother was slow, her health was declining. And so her direct access to me and being able to call me every day was not as readily feasible for her. So that's one and knowing that I had people who like looked out for me and cared for me daily. Um, the other one would be my faith um believing that this trajectory would lead to something uh fruitful at the end and knowing that i i didn't want to finish the way that i was i didn't i felt like the story ending with me saying you know i i i hustled and 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 struggled in my car and, and then i ended up leaving i just didn't want the story to finish so in some way stubbornness <laughs> and then um and, and lastly you know I'm, I'm the daughter of an immigrant mother I have seen her, you know, overcome so many obstacles and circumstances. And I think the strength that she emanated, and at times it's probably driven by faith or maybe a little bit of stubbornness, <laughs> uh, hardheadedness to finish at all costs, is something that I wanted to emulate. And there are so many statements that she would say, you know, as long as you have your head on your shoulders, keep wearing your hat, you keep moving forward. and so i definitely wanted to ensure when i left home and made her the promise that you know this is something that i'm convicted i want to do i'm convinced as my skill set would be best used in this in this trajectory i i wanted to make um i wanted to stay true to the promise that i made so in summary my faith um my best friend the example that i would seen growing up despite circumstances being difficult my mom persevering and so those in combination to help me to persevere, even on days where when I really wanted to quit, <laughs> when I felt like it was, you know, your your car has no AC, it's cold at night or the neighborhood is sketchy. I mean, I remember being at Cedars uh, doing an externship and right at the end, I would have to drive to like East LA because at East LA, they wouldn't check your car or tell you to move your car. But then East LA, you're dealing with other circumstances that may make sleeping in a car a bit more um, dangerous. So um, in different parts of the city. So it's, I hope that answered your question. I kind of go in a roundabout way, but I hope that answers the question. No,
0: no, no, you left out stubbornness, but <laughs> in your summary, <laughs> in your summary.
1: That part. <laughs> yeah. No, but uh, you have an incredible
0: yeah. story, uh, a story that's worthy of writing a book about. Um, it's so uh, inspiring. You've mentioned your mom several times uh, in your narrative. Can you tell us a little about um, your mother, what she means to you, and the impact she's had on your journey?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Thank you for asking that. Um, My mom, um, she's since deceased. She passed away a year and a half ago. And my mother was a constant uh, cheerleader, <laughs> is, uh, is, she's um, she's of Caribbean descent. She's Haitian, and if you're, I mean, for the audience listening, Haitians tend to be very spiritual and religious. And so sometimes I believe that her, you know, her prayers. At, as as a kid, I used to scoff at them. As an adult, um, in hindsight, they were they were really uplifting. So my mother was um, a rock for me, and she's the type of person where you would call, and without saying a word, she knew exactly what you needed to hear um and so she demonstrated you know a tenacity that really was exemplary and one that you know forced her to ensure that her kids were had opportunities even if those opportunities um you know well it's not let me say this she ensured that with the resources she had that we had the best opportunities to succeed and then it was up to us to make that decision and I'll always respect my mother for the many sacrifices that she made. Um, she definitely was a motivation and it was, it was heartbreaking and devastating when she passed away my intern year. Um, and so I think now, if something that I wanna stay true in moving forward with my life and my career endeavors is to simply um, you know, honor her, honor her and the sacrifices that she's made. And I wish that I was able to return the sacrifices back to her. And unfortunately, um, life had a different plan. But um, I think it's her steadfast nature. And it's not to say that my dad was entirely absent. He was also very influential. But my mom is the constant person in my entire life who's always been present during my moments of victory, moments of celebration, and moments when you're in your dark crucible and nobody sees those moments, which is really where you're building yourself. And, And so... Um, my mom was my heart, <laughs> so, and she, a piece of that, um, has healed or is still healing, but, uh, a piece of my heart, uh, definitely went when she passed.
0: Wow. I don't know what to say and I'm supposed to have, uh, all the words, right? Um, Uh, What I can let you know is that you are returning your mother's sacrifice in spades. Make no doubt about that. Thank you. You inspire so many as a Black woman, a doctor, a scientist, a daughter, a friend. But you also inspire others in a different way. You inspire people through your art. Truth be told, you're one of the best artists I've ever met in my entire life. (laughs) What has art meant to you and how have you evolved as an artist?
1: Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Um, so art, um, it's funny, uh, you know, I think I alluded to that earlier, is that my father taught me how to draw, and he pretty much set me on that trajectory. And so art has, has had different meanings for me um, in different phases of my life. As a kid, art was a means for me to connect with my dad, and it was a means for me to connect with also history. I used to sit in front of an encyclopedia and look at a different characters, different Um, Chinese history or Egyptian history and would just try to replicate what I saw Um, and then as a teenager you know as you're trying to fit in you're trying to find the glove that fits art was a very easy way for me to connect with people and I loved that people used to just simply see my art would want to ask questions and suddenly something that was very personal was identified as relatable to a complete stranger and I loved the cross-functionality of art. That it was talent, it was um, symbolism, it was expression, and it was also a means for you to connect with strangers. And it crossed like socioeconomic barriers, religious creed. I, I love that. Um, and then art kind of took a backseat as I was pre-med. Um, and every now and then it would resurface. I used to do like um chalk drawings of historical figures during black history month in college and stuff like that but not in any serious capacity and then medical school um trying to just keep up with the technique to ensure that i wasn't like losing my skill set i used to do portraits i would have like five minutes here and there and i would start like the frederick Douglass picture i have on my website and then as i hit like a, a space where i was you know i didn't really know how things were going to pan out financially, and I was in my car and, you know, money was kind of sketch. Um, I remember a a friend of mine, she was like, use what you have. And she's like, look at what you have currently as far as talent and use what you have to supplement what you need. And I'm like, you know, I've never saw, I, I never felt the need to commercialize my art. I've always felt some kind of way about that. So I started doing portraits and I made, I had this website, it was kind of de facto and I kind of revamped it. And every time I was in the OR, OR, I was on rotation, I would talk about it with attendings and somebody would buy a piece of artwork <laughs> or um, someone's friend would hear about it and they'd buy something. And that's typically, that's kind of how it it, it grew uh, my website and the few portraits that I had, I just sold. Um, as far as like commissioned work, I haven't done that much um there are a few that's come here and there but not in any significant like capacity that i would consider myself like a full-fledged artist in los angeles there's such a huge community of artists so i i try to humble myself in light of those who are currently thriving in that space but um so and if you look at my website all of the subjects that i've Painted are subjects that have contributed to the advancement of equal rights, specifically as it pertains to um, African Americans, or I would say globally. um, People of the black or African diaspora and I've always felt a strong need to ensure that their story and that story remains alive and I would recall how in high school you know, it didn't matter what you painted, if it was done stylistically, people were interested in hearing the story. And so I would recall having conversations about, say for example, Malcolm X, with people who would consider him by all means uh, a radical, if you were to simply look at his narrative as far as it's portrayed by like mainstream, you know, mainstream certain demographics or mainstream factions but the ability to humanize him the ability to humanize his his message all through art i thought was spectacular so now i'm in a space where i'm revamping i'm refiguring what art is going to mean to me in a space where you know it's not driven by needing to survive it's not driven by needing to belong and needing to connect but really one that would be a reflection of my surroundings as well as the evolution of me not necessarily um, relying on it for external validation.
0: Beautifully put, and you seem to be in a great place. For me, art has always had a therapeutic quality. Do you ever use art performance as a means to cope with some of the inequities you've seen, or uh, maybe even some of the prejudices you've experienced throughout your career? It's just, it's a lot, the racial inequity, the socioeconomic inequalities, the gender inequalities. It just seems like art is the perfect escape from it all.
1: Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, it's definitely served a role to simply block the world out. And when I draw, whether it's doing a portrait or simply sketching on my, uh, my sketch pad, it feels like it's a space that's just unadulterated. It's a space where you can simply be... And the titles, the accolades, the publication, the awards, um, none of those things matter. It's simply pen on paper or pencil on paper or paint on canvas. And that space feels so freeing. And sometimes you need that break. Sometimes, you know, when your fight or flight is constantly on, having to perform, having to ensure that, you know, you check all your, you cross all your tease and dot all your eyes Um that, that space sometimes can be strenuous and so art has definitely been therapeutic and I think most notably in this artwork that I haven't showed around the space when I was grieving my mom you know the space where I didn't necessarily have the liberty to grieve because I was still in residency and you're working so many hours <laughs> and so the small moments that I would have say grabbing a lunch I would just Sketch. I would sketch, like, my mother's name was Violet. I would sketch, like, the African Violet flower, um, or I would sketch a uh, memory of her and I, and, and that definitely gave me a space where it was okay to emote, and I would do it through art.
0: As you grow in your career as a medical professional, I'm sure if you think about your purpose in this world and also your legacy, what role or responsibility do you feel you play to society as both a Black doctor and a Black scientist?
1: <laughs> um, you know what's funny? As, uh, as I went to HBCU for undergrad, and the interesting thing is, I, I always knew that there was a, a, a huge sense of responsibility in paying it forward, but also ensuring that those who paved the way were highlighted and remembered. The idea that being Black in STEM is not as novel, Uh, maybe to the population at large it is, but you and I both know the history stems back. (laughs) You know, we've had a, a series of Black scientists. And so in some regard, it's almost like, it's not necessarily, it's not driven by guilt, but it's a sense of responsibility of paying it forward. And I just view that as me as a human being. I have been offered an array of opportunities despite the ups and downs of what this career trajectory has been. So um, yeah, I wanna make sure that if there are other young girls who are curious, other young girls who come from backgrounds like me, other um, young girls or boys and or boys may think that their circumstances um, have pigeonholed them into one career path. I hope that they can say hey, you know, I heard about Dr. Charles or a Melissa and she she she, she got there, I can too. And there while I, I don't want to say that there's nothing special about me, I think there's something special in everyone. Um, but the unique opportunities that I have can be available to um, to anyone, regardless of their background. So I think that's the overlying, overarching, excuse me, overarching message that I hope is is remembered um, of me. As far as scientists, um, I take mentorship very seriously. I, I always respond to. Um, As much as I can to young pre-med students who inquire about how to navigate opportunities they should look for. uh, I want to ensure that they have access to it. And so that's something that I take seriously. I have about like three or four students that I directly mentor and others very indirectly through like very just checking in every now and then and others that I'm heavily involved with and If I don't have the answer, I direct them to other people. So I just kind of pay it forward.
0: Most of our viewers will be inspired. There's no doubt about that. But there are a few that may be discouraged. And for good reason. They might question if pursuing medicine is worth the mental, emotional, and financial sacrifice. What do you tell those people? Because going into this field is a huge sacrifice. And we can't front and act like that's not the case. What do you tell someone who's on the fence about joining medicine?
1: Well, the first thing is um, you just gotta keep it 100. (laughs) They're right. The the toll is great. The sacrifice is great, but the reward is greater as well. And when I think of where we currently are in the space of public health, um, currently in the middle of a pandemic and some of the weariness that have been brought up by certain demographics about trusting you know, a medical care system because of its history of trauma with certain demographics, as it pertains to people being afraid of not really being given informed consent, right? (laughs) Um, And and I'm not referring to the isolated syphilis, men were inappropriately followed in Tuskegee. I'm talking about like the plethora of stories that have occurred on this ground. Part of ensuring that we restore trust is having representation and representation is so key, especially when certain disparities still exist, despite um, you know bridging demographics that would preclude one from having access to quality care, such as like socioeconomic strata. And the only way that we can ensure that that moves, then we move the needle in a direction that is more inclusive as far as care and we improve outcomes is that you have um, decision makers that have the interest of all the demographics that they serve and that are not driven by internal biases that they may be blinded to. And so representation is key and support is key. (laughs) There is a huge, um, a huge team of black physicians that just simply may not be easily tapped into. And so I'm hoping you know, as I progress in my very non-traditional career, for those who still want to pursue a traditional career, that I can connect them with the network of Black physicians that I'm exposed to, those who still practice and those who don't, so they can know that there are so many ways to ensure that these disparities don't exist. So the reward is gonna be greater. And I think you do have to be a little neurotic to pursue this field. <laughs> you know, you're you're sacrificing, you know, years of your prime time to ensure that you are, you know, being part of patient care. And, and that is noble and that is highly commendable. And so if this is your dream, don't let the sacrifice dissuade you because the reward will be great and time will elapse eventually. But if you know that that's not something for you, it's gonna be too taxing and you wanna use other avenues to contribute to healthcare, being a doctor is not the only way to do it. Being an MD isn't the only way to do it. You can do it in so many other capacities um, and still be just as influential. Um, I know in in some cases I was taught by nurses more than I was taught by physicians as a resident. So I, I, I think we have to look at healthcare in a more global capacity. You know, there are other ways that may not require the same level of sacrifice. And then when you look at where we currently are as far as history is concerned and where we wanna be 10, 20 years, you know, um, being part of that narrative, being part of the overall fabric that mirrors and reflects the society that it serves, will take the young black girl or black woman, black girl or black guy to say, I'm going to stick through it, regardless of how difficult and how much the sacrifice is.
0: Thank you so much. We've definitely been inspired. You are the real Dr. Charles. I am giving up the throne. You're just amazing. If our viewers are interested in connecting with you or buying some of your art, how can they reach you?
1: Um, you can reach out to me at on Instagram, on my website. Um, my Instagram handle is dr underscore m charles, and my website is um, melissacharlesart And uh, you keep saying I'm inspiring. I'm like, ah, I, I always cringe when people say that. Um, but I, I'm I'm just I'm the same regular girl from Ottawa, Canada, <laughs> who left determined, and I try to stay true to some of the values that. You know took me on this journey even now as a md phd clinical research scientist you know uh, a co-therapeutic lead for a clinical research trial it's i am still that same girl and so uh the journey was torturous but um you can always reach out i'll do my best to return the message in due time so instagram dr underscore m charles or my website com.
0: That's all, folks. If you have any questions or comments, drop us a line on Instagram at hohthepodcast. Stay safe, wear a mask, and get your vaccine. I got mine. See you next week.